Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. What a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord. So it's 11.22. I should be done by 1.22. Yo, what if, just what if, the glory of God came in? We keep, we, I, I just want you to get past this idea that uh, until we get our church, can we really have revival? He can meet us right here in this room. We might have to send somebody to the owners or whoever's managing the place and say, we can't stop. We're going to keep on going. Uh, I see I've been in services that started uh, early, early and would last into the evening because of uh, the glory of God and nobody wanted to leave. And so um, anyway, who knows what God might do in this ballroom? Uh, it's a privilege to bring the word to you. Last week we talked, well, last week it was July 4th, so we had hot dogs and burgers and, and baptism. Burgers and baptisms was last week. Uh, but the week before that, I was uh, talking to you from the 17th and 18th chapter of Revelation about the, the harlot of Babylon and the antithesis of the harlot is the virgin bride that's you and me and he's uh so so we talked about that we 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 there's a song that i think did i sing a little bit of it hallelujah babylon has fallen uh that we wrote uh for our revelation project today the title of my sermon is engaged everybody say engaged Engaged. say we getting hitched that's not good grammar but Say it again. We getting hitched. <laughs> uh, it's important that you understand this, the, the concept. So I'm going to paint this picture for you today and see what God might release and open up our eyes and help us to see and hear. We're now on the home stretch. We began in January the study on famous last words. We began in chapter one and we stayed in chapter one for a few weeks, right? <laughs> Then we ended up in chapter two and three and stayed there for a few weeks and uh, because God was saying a lot to us about those, what's happening in those chapters. We're on the home stretch, not because we're in the 19th chapter of a book that has 22 chapters, but because in the 19th chapter, anticipation builds very quickly. Yeah. And we're going to read from chapter 19. Let's read that passage of scripture. Everybody together, I'm reading from God's version. (laughs) Thanks for that laugh over there as you hear it. That was good. Somebody really got it. Uh, New King James Version. There was this song. It was on this little, someone made a cassette tape and it just, if it was internet time, it would have gone viral, but it was just a cassette tape and somebody would make copies and give it to their friends. And it was a, it was a little project called Hymns Your Mother Never Sang. 
And one of the songs said, if John the Baptist used the King James Version, then it's good enough for me. So it was like anti. You've got all of these other versions, but this is God's version. Uh, John the Baptist, right? Okay, let's read this. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, hallelujah. Everybody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Anytime we get to the word hallelujah, I want you to say it loud. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying for the Lord God omnipotent reigns let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God in verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There are in this text two clear signs that we're getting near the end. The first is the verb, hallelujah. John used it four times. In Revelations, the 19th chapter, we just read through this whole passage, 1 through 10. Three times, it is the great multitude that cries. There was in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6. The other time, it's the 24 elders and the four living creatures who cry out, Amen, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a literal rendering of the Hebrew behind the Greek. It means you praise God. Or more exactly, you praise Yahweh. Hallelujah means you praise. Yah is the short form of the sacred name of God. Strict Jews 
Y'all bear with me if I get all my information right, being from Israel. I know you're really from Texas, but, uh, uh, but when I say strict Jews, I look over and see your face. Uh, strict Jews of the Old Testament times and modern times avoid uttering the name Yahweh. This is because they do not want to break the third commandment. You shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. When the strict Jew comes to a text with the name Yahweh in it, he or she substitutes the word Adonai, which means Lord or my Lord. For the most part, the church has followed this practice. Most English Bibles consistently translate Yahweh as the Lord. They're rendering a personal name as a title. For example, we have translations like, who is the Lord but the Lord? There is no punch to it. <laughs> Whereas the psalmist, when the psalmist asks, who is the Lord who is sovereign but Yahweh? Wow. Yahweh is sovereign over Baal, over the Asherah, over Zeus, who are also called Lord. In using the verb, hallelujah, we are uttering the sacred name. It will, really, we're we're uttering the nickname of the sacred name. Hallelujah, you praise Yah. Can I say nickname for Yahweh? Short for Yahweh. In Revelation 19, we just read it. It's the only place in the New Testament in the New Testament where we find the word hallelujah. In this chapter, the 19th chapter, the only place in the whole New Testament that we find the word hallelujah. We have throughout this journey, mining through the book of Revelations, come to appreciate the fact that John uses words very carefully. Or maybe I should say, Jesus, who gave John the revelation, uses words carefully. This fourfold use of hallelujah in this passage is not simply the overflow of enthusiasm. We've been there, right? We've been in a worship service and uh, we finish, we try to finish, and somebody in the room, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know, that's, you know, that's the enthusiasm of the, the zeal we have for the presence of God. It's hard to contain ourselves, but that is not what's happening here. It's not, it's not a, a, a first century equivalent to like, wow, dude. No, no, that's not, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, you praise Yahweh. Yes. Hallelujah. The instruction, the verb. Hallelujah. Yes. The place in the Old Testament where hallelujah is used the most is in the book of Psalms. Everybody would have guessed that, right? right. The whole prayer book, they call it, ends in a, a whole flourish of hallelujahs. Mm-hmm. Psalm 146 
147, 148, 149, and 150 each begin with hallelujah, yah. Rendered praise the Lord, the Lord. Psalms 150, the last psalm, ends with hallelujah, yah. Not y'all. <laughs> the place where the verb is used the most in the book of Psalms, though, is found in Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms or the You Praise Psalms. This is significant because the Hallel Psalms were sung at Passover. Psalm 113 and 114, before the meal. Psalms 115 through 118, after the meal. Mark tells us in his gospel that after Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover meal together, and after he had instituted this new meal, which we call the Lord's Supper, that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's found in Mark 14, 26. The hymn Jesus sang with the disciples would have been Psalm 115, 16, 17, 18, or perhaps all of them like in a praise package. This was their custom. Now here is the point. The thread that unites and runs through the Hallelujah Psalms is God delivering Israel from captivity in Egypt. Psalm 118, starting with verse 15 says, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It was perhaps, I, I, I don't know what kind of melody they had, the sound of joyful shouting, salvation in the tents of the righteous. They sang a hymn. And the custom was to sing these hymns. This was their Jewish custom. The celebration of God delivering Israel from Egypt gave birth to a hope fueled by the prophetic words from the prophets that one day God would deliver his people again. Only this time, from Babylon. So sing hallelujah. See why this fourfold hallelujah comes where it does in Revelation? In Revelation 17, 18, last week, John has described the fall of Babylon, the great city, the harlot, the mother of harlots. John has described the fall of the power that opposes God's purposes and depresses God's people all the more appropriate to sing the victory song. Hallelujah! Yeah. Hallelujah is sung at the Passover meal, celebrating this deliverance from Egypt. Now, hallelujah is sung because a new meal is at hand. The feast that celebrates the greatest deliverance won through the blood of the Lamb of God. This leads us to the second reason we know that we're on the home stretch, the mention of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I, I never hear people use this word. When I grew up, we had breakfast, 
lunch and supper. We never called it dinner. Then I married a woman from the north, and now we have dinner. No, maybe, maybe it was lunch, dinner, and supper. Any Texans? In, it, was that what it was? Did we do that? Was lunch, dinner? I'm sorry. Breakfast, dinner, and supper. Is that what we called it? Okay, that's okay. That's I'm remembering right. Daryl, is that what it was for you? It was breakfast, dinner, and supper. Now it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But the Bible says <laughs> it was called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, the arrival of God's kingdom, the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth is spoken of as entering into a great feast. Give me uh, Isaiah 25, verse 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees. I don't know what lees are. That's my middle name. Of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines at David Lee's house. It's a feast. He speaks of a feast. Uh, Revelations 19.7, we read it. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Verse 9 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why does the mention of this tell us we are on the home stretch? Because of the way Jesus spoke of this meal. Matthew records Jesus' parable, which we call the parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22, 1 through 4. I don't think you need to go there uh, unless you have it, but it's okay. I'm just going to dive in. It begins, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Jesus goes on to talk about all those who did not RSVP to the invitation and of, and, and of the need to be appropriately dressed for the occasion. The kingdom may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. To whom is Jesus referring to? But his father and himself. One day, the father is going to throw a big party for his son. For one day, his son is going to get married. And what? A feast it will be. Can you feel the thrill in the voice of the multitude in Revelation 19? Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Literally, the all-powerful one reigns. The great king reigns. No one has been able to topple him. Revolution after revolution has tried, but he still stands. The time has come to make a feast for his son, for his lamb who sits at the center of the universe. Hallelujah! The lamb's bride has made herself ready. Let us rejoice and be glad, sings the multitude, because we sing the words... Because we sing these, hello, Goldie, she saw daddy, and that was a thrill. That was, 
that's a good, that's a good illustrated sermon. When we see Jesus, we're just going to go, ah! We don't have the language for it yet. When we get the language, we'll say hallelujah. But until we get the language, we'll just say, ah! Huh. The lamb's bride has made herself ready. That was good timing, wasn't it? Let us rejoice and be glad. Because we sing these words so often, we assume they are found throughout the New Testament, but they are not. They're found in only two places. This phrase, let us rejoice and be glad. It's found in Revelation 19. We just read. And in Jesus' sermon on the mount, in the eighth beatitude, he said, blessed are you when people cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Let us rejoice and be glad because the vindication of Jesus' disciples is taking place. They are receiving their reward. Do you see the connection here? Why it's important. They have been invited to the great feast. Therefore, a new beatitude is in order. Blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah! This is the case we're making. The revelation of Jesus Christ in this last book of the Bible is not a crystal ball telling us the future, but a document to help make disciples. That makes sense, doesn't it? given the fact that Jesus' great commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic groups. That's in Matthew 28. Jesus gives John and us this revelation, this apocalypse. I was, I was confused when I would, as a kid, there was a movie that came out I never saw the movie, I only saw commercials, the apocalypse and the explosions and the bombs and it was evident they were predicting the end of the world and it's, but that's, the, 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 the apocalypse, the, the definition of the word apocalypse is the unveiling of. Or another, another definition is the breakthrough of. It, it, it's, it's, it's speaking that Jesus is breaking through upon us. The revelation of Jesus, the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus. I, I just want to redeem the definition. It's given to help us understand what it means to be a disciple especially what it means to be a disciple in the city. He gives us this set of images to help us in the clash between the great city, Babylon, and the greater city, the new Jerusalem. 
which comes down out of heaven. Or as John puts it, the clash between the harlot and the bride. The image has been there from the beginning of the book. Remember the first seven messages to the seven churches that Jesus dictated? The one to the church in the city of Ephesus. What is Jesus' one complaint to them? But this I have against you. You have left your first love. Revelation 2.4. For all their great programs in orthodoxy, they were no longer in love with him. More than anything else, Jesus wants lovers. And remember the seventh message to the seventh church, the one to the church in the city of Laodicea? What was Jesus' great promise? He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. That's Revelation 3.20. Here we are. This is the imagery of the feast. What kind of meal is he saying we will share? The words, I stand at the door and knock are to those who hear my voice and opens the door, echo the words of the great love poem in the Song of Solomon. A voice, my beloved was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. That's Song of Solomon, chapter five, verse two. The first message, you have lost your first love. The seventh, open the door, my beloved. And the fourth message right in the middle was to Thyatira, right in the middle about Jezebel, who seeks to seduce Jesus' bride into bed with Babylon. Throughout the Bible, the relation between Yahweh and his people is spoken of as husband and wife. You have Isaiah 54 for me? Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. Isaiah 61. I'm sorry, I left out says your God, but you knew that was God talking, right? Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul 
shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jeremiah 2, 2, do you have that? Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Then he goes on to ask, what did I do to make you want to follow false lovers? What did I do to you, my beloved, to cause you to chase false lovers? Ezekiel 16, starting with verse 8. Did I give you that one? When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave your sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk, adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose. My daughter Gracie loves that, that part. <laughs> you'll get close, you'll see why. I don't like that thing in her nose. But now she has scripture to stand on. <laughs> and I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Yeah. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour. Who's hungry? <laughs> Honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. How does that make you feel? Then God says, you trusted in your beauty, played the harlot. We just went through all of that. Consider now, these texts in the New Testament, John 3, 29, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, calls himself the friend of the bridegroom, the best man at the wedding. He is therefore seeing Jesus of Nazareth, to whom he points as the bridegroom who comes into the world to gather his bride to himself. Then a few verses later in John 4, we have the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Yeah. 
Is this story not intentionally connecting with all the previous well stories in the Bible? The wells that men went to find a wife. Isaac and Jacob, messenger sent to pick a wife. They would meet them at the well. It's not the woman at the well in this passage who's had five husbands and living with the man who is not her husband now being sought out by her true husband. Do you see the imagery? Do you see the connection? I love Revelation. I love all of these, all of these uh, references that, that connect us back to the Old Testament. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 25 through 27, the Apostle Paul exhorts, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Second Corinthians, the 11th chapter, Paul says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you, I engaged you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. We are the bride of the lamb, which is why there's an old hymn that says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. I don't want you to miss the extremely high view of the person of Jesus Christ implied in all of this. The role played only by Yahweh in the Old Testament is now being played by Jesus the Nazarene. He is the husband of the people of God. It would be helpful to review at this point the marriage customs of first century Jerusalem, the Judaism. The review can help us more fully appreciate what John is saying about the disciples of Jesus in the book of Revelation. There were three steps to getting married. There was the engagement or the technical term betrothal. Then there was the preparation for the wedding. And then there was the wedding supper itself. It, became, it began with the betrothal ceremony. The prospective groom would leave his father's house and travel accompanied by his best man to the prospective bride's house. There the groom would finalize arrangements with the bride's father, in particular, setting on the purchase price. And that day a woman was bought with the price. As soon as the groom paid the purchase price, the marriage technically went into effect. The man and the woman were legally husband and wife, although they would not live together for some time. She was declared to be consecrated to the groom, set apart exclusively for him. A new covenant was established between them, sealed 
by drinking a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction was pronounced. This is the cup. This cup is a new covenant, he would say. This is my chance to remind you. <laughs> if you don't have a mug, there's water in here. I asked them to give me water because I, I always have to stop and get a drink. And I thought, well, I might as well use this in the sermon. The visual, though, that the, the groom would take a cup of wine and say, this cup is a new covenant. Stay with me. Are you getting the image? Some of you people in the word already know where this is going. This cup is a new covenant. Then the groom would leave the bride's house and return to his father's house. Consider, consider the imagery. He would be away from her for roughly 12 months. During the period of separation, the groom would prepare a room for the bride in his father's house. And during the separation period, the bride would prepare herself for the wedding. Now, although they did not see each other during this time, and although they did not have relations, they were legally and spiritually bound to each other. So binding was this betrothal agreement, this covenant, that if the man died during the betrothal period, the woman was considered a widow. To break the betrothal agreement was the same as divorce. At the end of the betrothal period, the bridegroom dressed in festive attire and accompanied by his best man and friends would make his way back to the bride's house. Although everyone had a rough idea of when the groom would come, they did not know the exact day or hour. Usually, to add an element of surprise, he would arrive around midnight. His arrival would be preceded by the shout, Here is the bridegroom! Come out! Come out to meet him! Then with great joy, the bride, veiled and accompanied by her maidens, were carrying lamps, would come out to join the groom and his attendants. Then the wedding feast itself would begin. First, there was a brief ceremony involving the word take. The groom would take the bride from her home. Thus, the Hebrew expression, take a wife. You can find that in Numbers 12 and, and uh, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 2. After the groom took the bride, the whole bridal party would make its way to the groom's father's house. There they would find the wedding guest gathered and dressed in special robes. The feast would take off. It would last seven days, sometimes 14 days. Fathers, how would you like to pick up the tab for that feast? About A.D. 33 in Jerusalem, Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room. He takes a cup of wine, gives it to his disciples and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus then tells them he is leaving. 
What's more, he tells them that they cannot come where he is going. That's found in John 13, this whole story. Then Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Do you hear what Jesus is claiming? He is the bridegroom, the husband of the people of God. We are his bride. He has paid the purchase price with his own blood. He has sealed the engagement with the cup of wine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He is preparing a place for us in his father's house and he's coming to take us to himself, to be with him forever. We have been betrothed. We are engaged to Jesus Christ. Imagine how John's heart raced when as the revelation unfolded before him, he heard the multitude shouting, Hallelujah! The time has come for the marriage feast. Send out the invitations. Blessed, blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look carefully back to Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to God for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. There. In these verses is attention, attention we find throughout the New Testament. On the one hand, the bride has made herself ready. On the other hand, and it was given to her to clothe herself. Which is it? She made herself ready? Or he gave something to her that made her ready? Do we prepare ourselves for that day or does God do something in us that prepares us for that day? It's the same tension found in Philippians, the second chapter, verses 12 and 13. So then work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's doing the work? We disciples or Jesus? And the answer is yes, both. He calls us to himself. Then in relationship with himself, he begins to free us, especially from captivity to Babylon. And he begins to empower us to live a new life. Our new life leads to new deeds, the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation 19 and 8. Yet it is because of his presence with us. It is because of his power at work in us that we are able to do new deeds. That is why they're called deeds of the saints. Deeds of those who are already saved and being saved. Deeds done not in order to get into a relationship with the Holy One, but done because of the relationship 
with the Holy One. He makes us ready by enabling us to be ready. It is primarily his work. Revelations 21 verse 11, John speaks of the bride having the glory of God. It is having the glory of God that prepares us. That's why we worship. That's why we pursue this process of God inhabiting the praises of his people, not just in a sweet little service, but an invasion of glory is what we're after. I could stop and camp on that thought, but let me finish. Ephesians 5.26, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that he might holify her. <laughs> or as God says it in that tender text in Ezekiel the 16, I'm just going to rephrase it. We read it before. I spread my skirt over you. I bathed you. I anointed you. I clothed you. I wrapped you. I adorned you. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. Therefore, the multitude cries, hallelujah. The bride, the church is ready to enter into the feast, which lasts not seven days, not 14 days, but forever. What does all of this mean right now? Today and tomorrow or next week. It means at least six things. And I really am landing. That was very intuitive of you uh, to get ready because I'm about to land the plane. First, if we are engaged to the Lamb, then we have a powerful picture of the nature of Jesus' love for us. Yes, he loves us as his disciples. And yes, he loves us as his friends. That would be good enough. And yes, he loves us as sisters and brothers in the kingdom. And yes, he loves us as the temple, the holy place where he has chosen to dwell. And yes, he loves us as his body. That too would be enough. But Revelation teaches us that our Lord loves us more tenderly, more authentically, more affectionately than all of that. He loves us as his bride. Second, if we are engaged to the lamb, then we are very secure. We have been bought with the price, his own blood. We are not our own any longer. We are his. He has brought us into a covenant which he will never break. This is the new covenant in my blood. He will never walk away from us. He will never give up on us. As the lover in the Song of Solomon sings, my beloved is mine and I am his. More than that, he sings, I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me 
our desire for him as strong as it is is nothing compared to his desire for us and nothing can stand in the way of his fulfilling his desire that he love us that he have us third if we're engaged to the lamb then the fundamental issue of discipleship is loyalty i want you to hear me now the issue is fidelity we do not want to be found in bed with another lover babylon the harlot is very powerful and very seductive and she has her jezebels who deceive us into thinking that we can live by the agenda and value system of the harlot while engaged to the lamb. Just putting it that way makes clear how ridiculous this whole idea is. We cannot be engaged to two brides. People have tried and made a mess of it. Never have I felt this issue so deeply the harlot or the bride that's the choice of course it has to be the bride fourth if we're engaged to the lamb then sin is worse than we thought sin is adultery it is not only missing the mark or stepping over the line or it's not some kind of twistedness it is adultery it is profoundly relational. The Old Testament speaks of sin the way it does because Israel has not only wandered away from God or rebelled against God, as horrible as that is, Israel has committed adultery with her husband. The prophet Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah, after God remembers Israel's first love and after God asked what he did to Israel that she should go after other lovers, Israel still claimed to be loyal. God says, how can you say, I am not defiled? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley, he said. I know, know what you have done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion some of y'all don't get that but some of you are figuring out what this is about in the time of her heat who can turn her away the word picture is repulsive but that's not how it is with sin you have scattered your favors under every green tree, Jeremiah 3.13. Sin is adultery. Fifth, if we are engaged to the Lamb, then the call to loyalty is a call to be ready. The bridegroom has gone away to prepare a room in his father's house. And oh, what a house it is. I can hardly wait to get to chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. As he is preparing the room, we are preparing ourselves. The righteous acts of the saints, all those little and some big acts of loyalty, slowly but surely changing us from glory. 
to glory. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, all those sacred moments when we say, I am yours, Jesus. I am yours all the times. We come to a fresh surrender all of those times. He's preparing us. And sixth, the final one, if we are engaged to the Lamb, then the call to discipleship is a call to simplicity. Our lives are far too encumbered. We are far too busy. And we wonder why we lose intimacy. You who are married, remember when you were engaged? Remember how simple life was? The only thing that mattered was being with him or her. Talking on the phone. To two or three in the morning, sometimes all night. Amazing how it worked. We found all kinds of time. Being in love does that. It simplifies things. The call to discipleship, especially under the pressure of Babylon, is the call to do whatever it takes to stay in love. Do whatever it takes to stay in love. Do whatever it takes to live in and work towards intimacy with Jesus. Hallelujah! The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone close your eyes. I know this is a small group, but I can't end this without giving you an opportunity. Perhaps someone is in here that doesn't know the Lord and you're intrigued by all this conversation. Maybe everyone in the room, maybe we, this, maybe we've got it together. Most everybody here, uh, I think we're all familiar with one another, but perhaps you're watching on our live stream and you don't know the Lord. Maybe you accidentally found us flipping through your feed. I want to invite you. I want to send the invitation to become a part of the bride, to become a part of the body. So I just just want us all to say this prayer out loud. If you're in the room and you're saying this for the first time, now's your time. If you're sitting at home, Now's your time. Pray this prayer. Father, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross, to shed his blood, to receive the stripes on his back and the nail driven into his feet and his hands, the crown of thorns on his head, every drop of blood shed was for your bride the purchase price and you said 
whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we call Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. I want to be a part of all that you have planned for your beautiful bride. I make this declaration. I am saved. I have my invitation to join the wedding supper. The supper of the Lamb. The bride and the groom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.